Welcome to the Triage Method Podcast. As always with me, Gary McGowan, and my co-host, Mr. Paddy Farrell. How are you this week, Paddy? As per usual, Gary, I am absolutely phenomenal. Um, we're still under lockdown, as you are well aware. Um, again, this is we're recording this a week before it goes out, so who knows? The two of us could be fucking dead by now. Coronavirus cases are fucking on the up and up. I think it was at like 4,600 or something today. Um, so, you know, it's not great. Um, but look, we're here and we're recording this nice podcast. And speaking of which, Gary, what are we talking about today? Uh, today, we are continuing with the obesity series. Um, so obviously we're talking about obesity, but also overweight, you know, think about it as a spectrum. We're basically talking about the risks of, um, increasing your body fat excessively. And in particular today, we're emphasizing blood pressure, um, or hypertension or high blood pressure. So this is one of the complications, um, of obesity. And on average, if you were to take a random sample from the population, of those who were classified as obese and those who were classified as normal weight, um, you would expect that the obese sample would have higher blood pressure on average. As always with this, with this discussion, it's important to know that that doesn't mean that the comparison of any you know, two individuals from those groups um, or one individual from each group rather, that, that the obese person is always going to have pressure. That's not always the case. Um, you could have someone who is normal weight um, and has a higher level of visceral uh, fat, as we discussed last week. They could be less active. They could smoke. They could drink more, etc. Whereas the person who is classified as being obese, they could actually exercise regularly, have a great diet quality, no drinking, no smoking, etc. And as a result, they may have certain health markers that are actually in a better place, including blood pressure. So as always, don't view uh, body weight as just being a strict one-to-one relationship with these complications, but view it in terms of an increase in probability. And overall, it is pretty clear from the research that we have available um, that obesity does increase risk of developing hypertension for many different mechanisms, which we will explore today, hopefully. Wonderful. So obviously we covered some of the the heart disease stuff in a previous podcast series. Um, But if you will, Gary, seeing as you are in studying for a, uh, you know, that doctor thing that you're doing, you know, you know yourself. Um, But uh, what is, like, what is high blood pressure? Like, how do I know if I have high blood pressure? Like what's the categorization for it? And like, why should I care? about high blood pressure like isn't that something that old people care about like that's that's not me like i I don't really care you know like that's that's for 50 year old men to care about Mm -hmm. that's yeah no yeah so first things first if you're new around here i would recommend and listen to our cardiovascular slash blood pressure series that we did during the summer because we did have at least one if not two or three episodes on blood pressure related to exercise, nutrition, and general information on blood pressure. So do check those out. Um, But if you are, you know, just here for this one episode, we'll give you a brief introduction. So overall, um, when you start to think about blood pressure, you kind of just like break it down first and foremost. So we're concerned with the blood. We're concerned with basically the pressure within uh, the blood vessels. 
So if you're not aware, you probably are. Blood is traveling around in your body, in your arteries and veins, and of course your capillaries um, and all that fun stuff. So it's like a big plumbing system and you've got this blood flowing around. But the key thing is that you're not just talking about fixed lead or copper pipes. You know What we're actually talking about is a dynamic system because your blood vessels are alive. So they're responsive to different hormonal signals, nervous system signals, um, to what's within them, the different molecules in the blood, the pressure of the blood, etc. And so your, your vessels can dilate. Um, and if they dilate and open up, that would typically reduce the pressure within the vessel. If they constrict, that's going to increase the pressure within the vessel. Much like if you were spraying a hose and you squeeze the hose, you'd expect the water to shoot out much faster with higher pressure, okay? So your blood pressure is essentially, in, in the simplest form, or the simplest definition would just be that it's the pressure within uh, the blood vessels. And it's a bit more complicated than that because typically when we think of blood pressure, we think of two different numbers and we think of one over the other. And that's your systolic blood pressure over your diastolic blood pressure. And the top number is typically higher. And you always want it to be higher. It's definitely not good if the bottom number is higher. Uh, because basically what you need for flow within the system is you need some sort of pressure gradient. And within the vascular system, systole is basically when your heart squeezes and pumps blood out through the aorta and around the body. Okay, That's a very simplistic uh, version of it. Uh, systole or the systolic portion of the cardiac cycle is your heart, if you think of it like a muscle, shortening like your bicep and squeezing out that blood. So that's the systolic pressure. And that's typically going to be, or almost always going to be higher because we want the blood to be flowing in that direction. If the bottom number was higher, it would be flowing back, not what you want. So systole or systolic blood pressure is the contraction phase, okay? Or the emptying phase of the heart. When we talk about diastolic blood pressure then, or diastole, that's going to be the filling phase of the heart. So that's when that ventricle is go or ventricles are filling up with blood. And at the end of that, and that's going to give your diastolic blood pressure. So when it's filling. So you're basically thinking of what's the pressure when we're squeezing everything out? And what's the pressure when we're filling it up? And for a more detailed explore, exploration of that, check out the previous podcast because we explored systole, diastole, the function of the heart, etc., in great detail there. And we want to keep it, you know, simple for the purpose of this episode. Okay. So the top number, as I said, systolic blood pressure, bottom number, diastolic blood pressure. And normally the numbers you're going to hear thrown around there would be 120 over 80 is typically referred to as being normal. Okay. There's variations, there's variations within guidelines and, and the, the kind of ideal numbers and the gold standards have changed in recent years. So if you were to look at the um, American College of Cardiology guidelines, what you'd see is that you're regarded as being hypertensive if you have blood pressure that's higher than 130 over 80. I believe it's 130 over 80, it could be 130 over 90, but the top number is generally more important. Um, so over 130 systolic, you'd start to be considered uh, hypertensive by American guidelines. That's a relatively new change um, and somewhat controversial depending on where you look, because one of the things that, that happens if you basically lower the threshold at which you give someone a diagnosis of hypertension is that you've now got more of your population that are immediately classified as having a disease, which has implications for things like insurance and maybe perverse interests. You could say that, oh, they're just lowering the numbers so they can sell more drugs, blah, blah. Okay. You can see why there might be some controversy there. 
that's not for this episode. For now, just know that once you're getting higher, things become more pathological. In Europe, um, the guidelines are still kind of at that point where you'd be considered to be hypertensive if you're over 140, over 90. And that's typically the, the standard number that a lot of doctors would go by. But again, you know, cutoffs are cutoffs. They're not totally arbitrary, but they do have to be placed somewhere. And as a result, you shouldn't just be walking around thinking, oh, well, you know, my blood pressure was 138 over 88, so I'm not worried about it. You know, it is a spectrum and generally lower is better. Okay. It's not, it's not a case of lower always being better because you can have symptomatic hyper tension for sure. Um, especially, you know, in, in elderly people, that can be a problem. It can be a cause of falls, et cetera. Okay. So that can be a problem, but a lot of the time at the kind of general public health level, we're typically more concerned about hypertension, high blood pressure, at least these days. So for a very simple understanding, you generally want your blood pressure to be lower. If it's so low that it's causing you symptoms, that's probably not a good thing, but it is a good idea to, to get it a bit lower. Okay. But why? That's, that's kind of the question. Okay. This isn't the episode for blood pressure physiology. Why do you actually care? The reason you care is because basically the higher your blood pressure is, the higher your risk of heart attack or myocardial infarction. Okay. Not a good thing. The higher your risk of stroke. Again, not a good thing. Heart failure as well. And I think heart failure is quite a nice one to understand because if you think about having a lot of pressure within your blood vessels, what that then means is that your heart almost has additional resistance against it at every beat. So it's much like you increasing the weight in the gym on your biceps. If you've got additional resistance within the blood vessels that you have to fight um, every time, as is the case with high blood pressure, your heart starts to basically um, thicken or hypertrophy and eventually down the line, it can lead to, to heart failure. Okay. So not a good thing once again. And another kind of big pillar there in terms of when we talk about hypertension and risk uh, would be uh, kidney disease as well, or renal disease, chronic kidney disease. So they'd be kind of some of the big things. It, it, hypertension plays a role, lots of other diseases uh, for sure. Um, and very often you're not just going to be looking at just hypertension, particularly if we're talking about obesity. So you could have um, hypertension plus type 2 diabetes plus dyslipidemia, which might complicate things even further and put you at risk of lots of different diseases. But overall, there are some of the reasons you should care about your blood pressure. That's roughly where you want it to be and roughly where you should start um, to become more concerned. Uh, the good thing is it's a very simple thing to, to screen for and to check. And we'll, we'll discuss that more, I think, at the end of the podcast. Yeah. So Okay, so high blood pressure is not good for pretty much any of your organs um, in general. It's not good for your, your body in general. It's also not a good thing to have if you also have these other complications like we touched on and we will touch on in future episodes in terms of like obesity and blood lipids. You know, it's like this, you're, you're creating a situation where you've got multiple things working against you, which is obviously something you don't want to have. So whatever about if you have this one thing like high blood pressure and all your other markers are perfect, you know, we're setting up a situation where all those other markers are not perfect. And again, you don't want to have a series of modifiable things that are working against you. Right. And that kind of brings us to the thing in terms of high blood pressure is modifiable. Right. And well, when you're reading the research on this stuff, you basically come across the, the, 
the fucking statement that's like, oh, we don't really know why obesity causes high blood pressure. And that's basically what I want people to get from this episode, um, that we don't know the exact mechanism like specifically like some people will say oh it's impaired calcium signaling and that causes you know vasodilation to be impaired right but that's well that might be the case for you know the the blood vessels or whatever right that's not really addressing the cause of it and i don't want to get into a discussion of like the root cause of high blood pressure is this i mean like what are the things that we're doing that's leading to that happening right because that's the stuff that we can modify and we've discussed it previously and but some people are just going to be genetically predisposed to have high blood pressure some people are just going to no matter what they do have high blood pressure and in those cases and we'll touch on that somewhat again at the end in those cases you know the only thing you can do after you've exhausted like modifying all your diet and you know whatever that we'll recommend here now in a second and you're just going to have to go on medication. Now, obviously that's me saying that as a lay person, like that's not medical advice. You have to talk to your fucking doctor about that, but we'll come to that in, in, in a while. But I just want to say here, before we start getting into like, why does the obesity cause high blood pressure? And um, I do want to just stress again, and I know we've done it repeatedly that, you know, sometimes this isn't modifiable. It's just genetic. It's just, it's just the cards you were dealt. You just have to deal with it. You know, like, and again, this is why you can go into a population of seemingly healthy individuals and still find individuals with high blood pressure, you know? And this is the risk. This is what evolution does to us. This is the price we pay for having these fucking random mutations. Some of you are probably going to get fucking superpowers and some of you are going to get high blood pressure. Sorry, you know, it's just, it's just the way it is, right? Um, okay, why does obesity cause high blood pressure? Or rather, I should say, why can obesity cause high blood pressure? Because like you were saying earlier on, it's not always the case like you said you could have a population or two individuals one of them you look at them and they're like obese the other one is a normal weight or seemingly healthy and you go oh uh which one of these has um high blood pressure and you automatically assume it's the individual that is obese because that's what the the science would suggest it's like they have a higher probability or you have a higher probability of being correct if you pick that individual but in those sample, those sample of two, like the individual that's quote unquote normal weight could be the one with high blood pressure, right? And, and the other individual who is obese could have perfect, you know, blood pressure, right? So it's not exactly a perfect correlation on the individual, you know, side of things, but on the population side, you know, it's a much more clear, you know, uh, correlation there right um but what why is that like wh- like why why would i assume that the individual that is obese is more likely to have high blood pressure what's going on there yeah so there's there's lots of different um mechanisms that are potentially at play here from just from the kind of neural side the hormonal side purely mechanical effects there's lots of different things going on I'll talk through them in a moment But before we get there, I think that something that we try to always make clear is that, again, we have to remember that like obesity is a point that you get to that is associated with certain behaviors more than others. And as a result, you have to think about what the path was to the person becoming obese, because we know that if someone has come to the point where they've gradually gained weight over time, that they've had 
excess energy intake, um, they are likely uh, to have had, or if they have had um, a poorer diet quality, then that's also feeding in here. Okay. So we could actually be looking at different relative contribution to someone's hypertension risk between an individual who's obese, who had a very poor uh, quality diet versus someone um, who's obese and has had a very high quality diet, you know, low in salt, higher in fruits and vegetables, etc. So there could be actually a relatively different contribution to each person's hypertension, um, where one person might have more of a contribution from the purely obesogenic side of things. Um, it's just to do with um, them being obese, the additional body fat, um, the physiology associated with that rather uh, than the diet because their diet's on point. Whereas the other individual, it might be more so to do with diet or maybe they just have higher blood pressure overall. So do remember that. Um, I think that becomes really important at the end when we start to talk about potential potential advice here. Uh, because it's not just about losing weight and there are options here without you having to modify your weight. Um, so yeah, think of that we're talking about the process. That's also important. Uh, but then we want to talk about the actual outcome. So does obesity increase uh, risk of hypertension just, in and just, of itself? Just, just on that as well, yeah, like further modifying to what you just said about the diet. Uh, and it's basically a process of how you got there. If you go back and listen to the previous episodes we've done in this obesity series, you'll also, like if you've been paying attention, you'll also start piecing together a few other things that could also potentially go into this. Like we've been talking about like the socioeconomic status um, mm -hmm. and obesity, you know, like if you're coming from a, a background or you're an individual in a background or in a, an environment that is causing obesity, it's obesogenic, you know, we can pretty much say, just like we can say with the obese individual more likely to have higher blood pressure, we can also say, if you are obese, you're more likely to have a lower socioeconomic status. And um, like, there's all other stuff that goes into that as well in terms of, it's like, oh, you've increased stress, you know, you've different, you know, changes in, in your physiology because of the environment that you were raised in potentially, you know, like there's, there's other stuff going on beyond just, Oh, what do you eat? You know, um, like you might eat a perfect diet, like Ari was saying there and you know, your obese or your uh, blood pressure might be in a bad place anyway. And that might be because, you know, it could be like Ari said, like the mechanical effects, the stuff that we'll get into in a second, but it also could be some of these, we'll call them like quasi uh, modifiable effects in terms of like your upbringing, your, you know, socioeconomic status currently, like that kind of stuff. It's like that, that still plays a role in all of this. And it's often left out of the discussion because it's not as easy to discuss in terms of, you know, we're just having a physiology discussion. It's really easy to just talk about, oh, this happens and this happens and this happens. And then it's also easy to talk about the nutrition side of things in terms of, oh, it's all just about the calories in, calories out. That's obesity solved. But in reality, as we've been discussing, and we have a few other episodes to finish up on it, um, there is more to it in terms of like the socioeconomic side of things. And that is a further risk factor for high blood pressure, especially as we know that stress also plays a role in here. So if you're stressed over money, you're stressed over, you know, getting fucking clothes on your kids back, you know, it's like, there's that kind of stuff. Like we could fucking work all day on your diet and it's likely to have 
a benefit. Like I would, I'd be hesitant to say it's not going to do anything, but that might not be the biggest risk factor for you as an individual or for the individual that you're looking at. If you're just, you know, basically judging people and um, based on their high blood pressure on the streets, if you had like x-ray goggles or whatever, you know? Um, but yeah, I just wanted to say that as well. For sure. Um, all really important. And I mean, like that's, that's one of the reasons we kind of have emphasized many times in the podcast that it, it is hard to dissociate uh, psychology from physiology physiology a lot of the time because that is one of the things you do see in blood pressure uh, research in general is that you know as we know people deal with stressors differently you know so me and you could be exposed to the exact same stressor it could be solely a quote-unquote stressor but there are different physiological responses and if you have one individual who's really stressed at work each day they could be doing the exact same work as someone else but their blood pressure response um, could be vastly different to stressors. And as a result, that's then manifest in their physiology. Um, so yeah, there is, there is a lot to discuss there too. But when it comes to the mechanisms of obesity, um, driving an increase in, in hypertension risk, uh, there's, there's lots of different layers to this. And I think that an easy way to, to break it down is that they, they all fundamentally kind of convene on a couple of different things. Um, so basically, you, you tend to see like an increase in the activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Uh, you may have heard of that before, typically referred to as the RAS system. I'll discuss it in a few minutes. Um, but for now, that's one of the kind of big pillars. Um, increased sympathetic nervous system activity is another big pillar. And overall, they kind of convene on an increase in, in renal uh, sodium reabsorption. And basically, uh, as a very simple rule of thumb, water follows sodium. So where you have sodium reabsorption, you basically get um, an increase in fluid uh, reabsorption or retention as well. So they're fundamentally kind of the, the big things um, that we're interested in uh, because th those variables, just those couple of variables there, they basically give you a... a a situation where you're basically retaining more fluid and you're also constricting your blood vessels. And if you were to, if you were to think about what would happen, if you were to, you know, fill up a, a balloon with more, even more water, continuously trying to compress it, you'd expect that the, the pressure would increase um, within that balloon or within that water bottle or whatever. And that's what happens in your blood vessels. So just, like, just on again, that. Th there are more layers to this. Right? Yeah. Just on that, uh, like this is actually probably what people have actually experienced over the Christmas period. Now I know it's probably like fucking two or three weeks now from Christmas, but if you just eat a load more food, likely, you know, higher salt food, like especially people having like ham or whatever with their, their Christmas dinner, like they probably noticed an increase in, you know, water retention themselves. And if you are like a lot of people in the health and fitness world, you know, measuring your, uh, heart rate you might have noticed that oh actually a few days after christmas like my heart rate's been consistently elevated and this is you know one of the things as well it's because you're holding all that extra water now again some of that is just from the sodium aspect some of it's from you know maybe a little bit of inflammation you've been eating a few extra sweets and whatever else your digestion is a bit off and um, like there's multiple factors that go into that but you can see that this stuff is modifiable on a like or influential influenceable uh, on a day-to-day basis um, and again like that's if we're talking about obesity causing high blood pressure chronically you have to be thinking about what has this individual been doing chronically that has led to this situation anyway yeah for sure and i mean you brought up 
heart rate there and that's a good cue because it's, it's something i forgot to forgot to mention so like i mean the basic uh, physiology of blood pressure i mentioned systolic and diastolic um but ba- the, the basic formula is is cardiac output by total peripheral resistance um and you don't need to remember that but the reason i'm bringing it up is because it gives you an appreciation for the variables and how they might be affected because total peripheral resistance can basically be thought of as the resistance from your blood vessel constricting, as would be the case if you've an increase in sympathetic nervous system activity or a stress response, um, then that's going to be um, that's going to increase total peripheral uh, resistance. Okay, um, but there are other there are other uh, variables in there as well because cardiac output is basically going to be your heart rate multiplied by your stroke volume. So your stroke volume is very simply the amount of blood that your heart can pump out per beat. And then your heart rate is obviously the number of beats per minute and your heart rate, if that is elevated for whatever reason, that can contribute um, to an increase in blood pressure um, if it is unopposed by a change in total peripheral resistance. Okay. Um, So I just thought I'd mention that because it just gives you an appreciation for the kind of different layers um, of this puzzle and it'll make more sense then when I'm kind of going through things. So we mentioned in last week's episode that, um, obesity or or that that visceral uh, adiposity, visceral fat, fat around the organs in particular tended to have deleterious metabolic health effects. And that's also true in this case. It seems like um, when you look at individuals who are classified as obese, those with higher levels of visceral adiposity um, are at higher risk um, of hypertension and some of the uh, potential mechanisms um, are going to be driven more so by uh, visceral adiposity. So the same rule applies here basically as, as last week um, with the, the more obese you are, um, yes, you are more likely to carry uh, more visceral adiposity as a result of that, but it really is um, the, the central um, location of body fat, again, more common in males um, and, and particularly around, around the organs that does lead to, to more complications. Um, and as, as we work through that, like one of the, the obvious ones that you could probably think of there is like, if we've got um, this, this body fat that's distributed around the organs. We mentioned uh, last week that two of the places that could potentially be, de- be deposited uh, would be your kidneys. So you can have perirenal adipose tissue. So you can have basically um, adipose tissue or fat that's around the kidney. So it's on the outside of it. And obviously, if you have quite a high amount of that, that can contribute uh, to compression. Um, And along with that, then you can have adipose tissue that's deposited within the kidney itself, within the renal sinus. And again, this can compromise kidney function. So these things together can contribute to an increase in that sodium reabsorption that I mentioned, um, and as a result, potentially contribute to um, an increase in blood pressure. That's not something that you're going to be able to check for by feeling around. Um, it's hard enough to feel someone's uh, kidneys in general. Um, but but yeah, it's, it's just worth knowing that it's one of the potential mechanisms. And then all these mechanisms as I go through them, they're all linked together as well, because if you have that kidney compression, it can also contribute to the activation of that renin angiotensin aldosterone system that I mentioned previously, um, as well as potentially uh, the uh, aldosterone receptor as well, or mineral mineralocorticoid uh, receptors. Um, when I mention al- aldosterone, the reason I bring that up is because it's one of the the primary hormones here that is kind of at the end of the the RAS system. Uh, that's basically leads to that renal sodium absorption again. So basically all roads lead to Rome when we're talking about this topic. Okay. Um, and then, and then in addition to that, you've got the increase in 
in sympathetic nervous system activity as a consequence of obesity. So that's basically the stress branch of your um, autonomic nervous system. So your nervous system that's there looking after things in the background. And again, that can contribute to both uh, the renal sodium reabsorption as well as um, contributing to the other effects such as um, the RAS activation um, and, and an increase in aldosterone secretion. So all these things basically contribute together constantly. And the thing as well, I think like Patty alluded to it previously, is that when you've got an, an increase in blood pressure then, and let's say you're kind of on that spectrum of an increase of having an increase in blood pressure, that's contributing to cardiovascular disease. It's contributing to um, chronic kidney disease. And then you get further feedback that can potentially be linked in with the other metabolic abnormalities, uh, dysfunction in the endothelium. So in the, the vascular wall, um, inflammation, lipotoxicity, et cetera. And all these things start to kind of create this uh, pathological cycle that can both make blood pressure worse potentially and potentially make the renal injury, et cetera worse so overall like untreated high blood pressure is, is really not a good thing um, for the health of your kidneys or the health of your cardiovascular system um, there are some other um, interesting mechanisms as it relates to obesity one of the things i didn't mention actually i said that you can have adipose tissue around your kidneys and within your kidneys and you can also have perivascular adipose tissue which i mentioned last week and that basically just means that you can have fat that's basically in and around your blood vessels and as you can imagine, if you were to you know, stuff a load of stuff in and around blood vessels, it could potentially compromise their function. Um, I'm not sure how much of an effect that actually has on the mechanical properties of the blood vessel in terms of it's, it's strictly applying force in on the vessel. Um, but there is some evidence that there might be crosstalk there in terms of uh, the in inflammatory environment associated with that additional body fat. So there might be some crosstalk there that could compromise compromise potentially uh, the function of the vessels um it's very difficult to tease all that stuff out you were going to say something there yeah just on that i always kind of visualize that if you've ever got like frozen pipes in your house like they just yeah. burst you know like basically if the pipe doesn't have anywhere to expand and the inside stuff in this case blood is trying to expand more like it only makes sense that some sort of damage is going to happen to those vessels now as you said like it's hard to tease that stuff out because, mm -hmm. you know, maybe the, the adipose tissue around these blood vessels, whatever, have more give than we are, you know, saying they do. And maybe it's only an issue when you actually get really obese and it's like very densely packed. And, um, but even in that case, you know, who knows, but also you have to remember that, like it, as you said at the start, they're not just pipes. They are like active living tissue. They have stuff like mechanoreceptors because again, like that, that they, they need that to be able to sense the environment around them. And so maybe there's other changes that go on there when they start noticing that, oh, I'm pushing out against stuff and I'm getting more resistance here, you know? So very hard to tease that stuff apart and know what the overall contribution is. However, it's unlikely to be a positive contribution and yeah. that's really all you need to know for sure for sure um and then, and then th there are there are some other things that happen as well so um in obesity you get you get this is kind of one of the more uh, interesting and kind of detailed lines of evidence where there's a lot of back and forth with this does it cause it does it not is it just associated and that's leptin we mentioned leptin previously um as one of the um molecules that's secreted uh, by adipose tissue and Leptin, typically when we think about it, we think of its effect on the cessation um, of feeding. So normally it's thought of as being an appetite hormone. So 
the, the thing that we mentioned last week was that when you have higher levels of body fat, you have higher levels of leptin secretion. And basically when you have higher levels of leptin secretion, that's going to stop you from overfeeding. It signals to the hypothalamus within the brain. Um, and then that basically leads to uh, the cessation of appetite. Okay. But in the case of obesity, what can happen is you get leptin resistance. So you're no longer as sensitive to that signal of that additional leptin that's being secreted. And as a result, you don't get the same um, suppression of appetite that someone who is leaner would from the same quantity of leptin. But that's not all that leptin does. Um, it also seems to have a couple of effects that could potentially uh, lead to an increase in blood pressure. So when it does signal to the hypothalamus, it also increases um, sympathetic nervous system activity, um, which again, as we said, can influence sodium reabsorption, can influence vascular tone, it can influence heart rate, and as a result, it can potentially contribute to hypertension. Um, but another thing that's more of the kind of speculative um, area of research that's a bit uncertain is the contribution of leptin to increase in the secretion of aldosterone, which as I mentioned previously, um, increases sodium and water reabsorption. Um, and basically you do see in um, higher levels um, of, of aldosterone, you also see higher levels of leptin. And it seems like um, that, that, that there are, there are mechanisms uh, to suggest that, that, it could or that uh, leptin can increase uh, aldosterone levels it's just not so clear to what extent that matters um, it's not so clear you know how much this actually matters in humans there's potentially some sex differences it does seem seem like um, the female uh, obesity pathway to hypertension might be more related um, to aldosterone than it is to the sympathetic nervous system side of things which might be more involved on the male side evidence for which would be, it seems like females are a bit more responsive to drugs that are related to um, blocking the aldosterone receptor. So there's that side of things and leptin is potentially um, involved there. So that's, that's again, just kind of giving an appreciation for the fact that when you look through um, this body of research, the, the mechanistic explanations are interesting, but it's very, very difficult to tease it out because when you look at obese um, or the physiology of obesity, there's so many different things uh, going on that it's difficult to say which one exactly is contributing to it. Um, but overall, I think that like they are some of the some of some of the big players in terms of contributing. There is also changes in, in vascular function in terms of baroreceptor dysfunction. So your baroreceptors are basically um, specialized areas of your blood vessels that basically sense the pressure. So you would expect that if there's a big increase in bl blood pressure, that the vessels can dilate to accommodate that um, and vice versa. But in obesity, it seems like that baroreceptor dysfunction or function is compromised. And as a result, that could change uh, your ability to respond normally to changes uh, in, in, in blood pressure. And then also you've got the case of um, obstructive sleep apnea, which is uh, something that we've mentioned on the podcast already as it relates to obesity. But when you do have obstructive sleep apnea, you do have um, times you know, during the night, for example, when you are hypoxemic and hypercapnic. So you basically got lower levels of, of oxygen and you've got higher levels of carbon dioxide. And that can increase then chemoreceptor activation because your blood vessels, again, are sensing this stuff. They sense the changes of your blood gases. And that can increase sympathetic nervous system and um, activity. And as a result, your heart rate and thus your blood pressure as well. So overall, there's a lot of different things that are playing in here together. And as I mentioned previously, 
all of these things go on to contribute to a further pathological cycle. So if you have all these mechanisms playing together, of course, we can argue back and forth about which is most important, which is least important, which mightn't even matter. Um, but overall, we know that there is this spectrum from um, obesity plus hypertension um, going on to developing uh, renal injury and cardiovascular disease, which can then potentially make the regulation of blood pressure more challenging um, and present additional um, pathological elements associated with obesity. So overall, there's some of the mechanisms, it's probably more to it. And, and, and yeah, it's, it's interesting reading, but I, I don't think that it, it makes much of a difference knowing what all the mechanisms are unless you're designing drugs. <laughs> Ultimately, all you really need to know is that um, uh, having higher levels um, of body fat increases your risk of hypertension. And that's probably more so the case if you have higher levels of, of body fat located around your organs. Um, so yeah, that's my summary. Yeah. And just to further to that, we actually already said it, but I just want to put it here again just to reiterate um, and yeah, let's remember that obesity is a process so like how did you get obese like that stuff does play in and that's it's not really like well it is mechanistic because it plays into exactly what gary has been saying for example you think of the typical like obesogenic diet that we've been talking about you know low fruit and veg intake like we're not getting potassium in you know um higher intake of we'll say saturated fat and um, obviously that's playing into different things which again we've touched on before and we'll touch on again in brief in future episodes and um, but also like higher intakes of like sodium uh, higher intakes of sugar you know all this kind of stuff that's playing into modifying your risk of high blood pressure you know um, and this this becomes more relevant when we talk about what are the changes you can make to improve your blood pressure? Um, and obviously some people out there that are obese are already doing everything right, as we've discussed. Um, but obviously a large portion of people that get obese are not doing everything right. That's why we can say obese people, generally speaking, have a higher probability of high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it is, it is something just to be aware of that there are other stuff that or other things that are going on that it is part of the process of getting to an obese body weight that are causing the issues. And again, I'm just talking about that obesogenic diet, but also going further back, like your socioeconomic status, increasing your stress levels. You know, maybe you're obese because you comfort eat because I don't know, you were fucking traumatically abused as a child. And this is just how you have learned to deal with it. Um, and like, yeah, modifying your diet is probably going to help, but like you're still going to have potentially a higher risk factor for high blood pressure because you're a stressed, scared little child because you never got past that. And something like, you know, uh, psychotherapy or whatever, like psychology, getting a psychologist to look at you and talk to you and help you is probably going to be the most beneficial thing, you know? So again, like all of that stuff, it's, it's hard to give a blanket statement of like, this is the one thing you need to do for blood pressure. Like I'd love to, I'd be fucking rich if that was the case, you know, but it is realistically a more nuanced discussion and you need to actually identify both you as an individual, like your individual risk factors for both obesity and high blood pressure, if you were to be obese. And, but then also like assess your life in terms of what you're currently doing right now and what you have done in the past and how that is influencing things. And then obviously like assessing your life involves assessing the stuff that you just didn't have control over or don't have control over in your life. Like, you know, the fucking fact that you live in a fucking ghetto and there's gunfights outside your street every single night. Like that's not exactly modifiable. Like, well, yeah, of course you can move. Like it's not always as easy as that, you know? Um, 
but yeah, I just wanted to reiterate that the process of getting obese and the stuff that leads to obesity, such as the diet being where it is, like the, the stereotypical obesogenic diet, you know, it's not, it's, it's basically the exact opposite of the diet you would recommend for someone to help with uh, high blood pressure, you know? So that obviously factors into like, it's not mechanistic, but it is obviously part of this whole conversation of what's the cause because that, that is the cause. Like that's, that's the reason you're obese, all of that other stuff, which, you know, we've been talking in previous episodes about the causes of obesity, like all of that stuff factors in and you could effectively say, these are the causes of high blood pressure in obese individuals because as Gary has just gone through there and if you're again paying attention to the stuff you can see multiple points where stuff like stress stuff like lack of sleep stuff like you know lack of I know potassium in the diet lack of vegetables in the diet more sodium in the diet like you can see where stuff like that plays into high blood pressure but you can also see that oh that stuff is also the stuff that's causing obesity in the first place so it's it's a it's a hard conversation to you know disentangle everything and go this is the one true cause and this is what we need to focus on when in reality there's multiple things yes sir so with that said i think that the next point because i think that's all of the the main pathophysiology stuff i think the main thing to note, to note here now is that there are things that you can do. <laughs> That's obviously before we get on to Go ahead. What, you, what you can do just because I think this is also glossed over a little bit and it, it actually is important in terms of like measuring your blood pressure. Like yeah. I, I know we touched on it before in the previous uh, blood pressure episode, but also like just, just for this discussion in terms of obesity, if you could quickly go through both like at home testing. Cause I think that's like a simple, fairly non-invasive method. And uh, I'm hesitant to say that because I know a lot of personal trainers are listening to this and I'm hesitant to say that, Oh yeah, this is something that you could potentially do with your clients because I know in a lot of places, especially in America and stuff, you're actually not allowed to do this. Um, but you can always say, Oh, I wouldn't mind if you got your blood pressure tested. Um, and I know a lot of like pharmacies and stuff also tend to have, you know, in office testing, I don't know. But yeah, if you could just cover like at-home tests, doctor's tests, um, ECG, that kind of holder monitoring, which is like that at-home ECG, and then an echocardiogram. And like, just kind of talk through like, what should an individual be looking at? Like, because obviously they're gonna go online and go, how do I measure my blood pressure? Like, what should they as an individual be looking at? And then what can they expect from what a doctor is going to say slash do? Yeah. So in terms of like measuring your blood pressure, like it is one of those things that is very simple, um, but it's deceptively simple. So it can be so simple that you can basically just do it really poorly. <laughs> so one of, one of the things I think that I, before I forget to say is really important is that you can actually have uh, false positives in people uh, with obesity, potentially, and even just bodybuilders if they're quite large, um, because if doctors don't use the right cuff. So that's a really basic thing that if, even if you are buying um, your own blood pressure, blood pressure cuff, make sure that you, know, you get a large cuff if you are someone um, who does have large arms, regardless of whether that's muscle or fat, because if the cuff is really, really tight on you, it could potentially give you a false positive for hypertension. You know? So um, I'd actually like to see how 
that is quantified or if it's quantified in terms of research on hypertension and obesity. But anyway, that's, that's for my own interest. Um, in general, uh, what you want is that firstly, you, if, you're, if you're taking your blood pressure, you want to be like sitting quietly if you can for about five minutes uh, prior to taking the reading. One of the things that happens a lot of the time is people go into their GP and they sit down and you know, the GP takes the blood pressure and you're shitting yourself because you've just come in and I don't know, you're, think, you're, you're going to ask them for the pill, you want to go on the pill and it's really embarrassing and you're freaking out or I don't know, you need to go for, this happened to me before, you need to get it, I'm sure it's the exact same for you. You need to get a, a medical screen for sport, for boxing or something, and your doctor needs to check your balls for, <laughs> for you to be... A doctor has seen my balls so many times. Exactly. My doctor, or my doctor has seen my balls more than my girlfriend, I'd say. But anyway, that's... <laughs> so then you're like freaking out or whatever, and they're taking your blood pressure and suddenly it's like the overnight or whatever uh, that's happened to me i went to my gp once i was after a workout drinking a coffee on the way down and everything it was it wasn't a medical checkup it was for another reason and then she took my blood pressure and it was pretty high it came down again but she her first question was like uh, have you taken cocaine today i was like all right like you know first question fair enough that's your socioeconomic but status that's my ses there no yeah <laughs> but anyway yeah basically you want to be sitting quietly for five minutes if you can um it, it's generally recommended that you take the highest reading as well. Um, well, it depends where you look, but like taking the highest reading is generally what's recommended. That's obviously not going to be the case if it was really high because you were freaking out and you were anxious and then it dropped down loads. Um, but, you know, there, there can be a tendency, and I know I've done this myself, where you take your blood pressure at home and you get a low reading and you're like, oh, I won't even take it again. You know, I'll, I like that. You know, 118 over 75, yeah, I'll take that for today. Um, so you do want to do, do that. You want to make sure you're relaxed. You want to make sure that your arm is actually elevated. That's another thing that people kind of make a mistake of. They'll be holding their arm up. Arm up their muscles are contracted, increases your blood pressure. Um, or if their arm is just hanging down, uh, that again compromises the reading. So you want your arm to be elevated around the level of the heart. A lot of people will say, rest it on a cushion. You're sore. That, you know um what what are the other recommendations typically at least two um office measurements on at least two on two separate occasions would be needed to actually like diagnose hypertension so if you're a doctor and you just had one reading of 140 over 90 they're probably not going to say oh yeah you know here's a calcium channel blocker let's go right away um they're going to want to take that again um, and probably on two separate occasions before they actually give you some sort of diagnosis. Um, and again, there's variation in terms of in terms of the guidelines, in terms of like the the frequency of measurements and and that sort of thing. But in general, you wanna you wanna be relaxed. You want your arm to be elevated. Uh, you wanna make sure that you haven't had like coffee or a cigarette or any sort of stimulants before you go in. Obviously, like not taking cocaine or meth or whatever else you know before you go into the doctor's office um and, and that's going to allow you to to get a better reading in general like i think one of the things that that is like worth understanding as well is that there's both false positives and false negatives so if you go to your gp and an example would be obviously white coat hypertension you just freak out when you go to the doctor and that's 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 very simple to understand. It's probably lower throughout the rest of the day, but you just get anxious and it gets higher. But there's also masked hypertension. So for example, someone could go to their GP and their blood pressure is totally normal. But an easy example, I suppose, to understand this might be if you're someone who's like super busy at home, you're so stressed, everything's really stressful, you're having a really tough time 
and you just taking 30 minutes out of your day to be like, oh God, thank God I have a GP appointment. I can relax for a few minutes before I go in and I sit down and I finally chat to someone who is, aren't my kids who are driving me mental or whatever. <laughs> it could be the case that when you go in, you're actually more relaxed. Your blood pressure is now down a bit. Um, but throughout the rest of the day, your blood pressure is sky high um for other reasons so that is something to consider as well um, and for that reason you want to take multiple measurements um, and ideally like you don't die you know this yourself you want to go to make sure that it's that it's diagnosed appropriately things like cough size and all that sort of stuff can can change your reading so so yeah it's not one of those things as well um, i should say because i do say this to clients sometimes when they sign up i'm like look if you have the chance to to take your blood pressure um go ahead, uh, let me know, but I don't need you to track this every day. Like this isn't something you need to track every single day. You see people doing that. And unless like, unless it's actually high and you're trying to, you know, see where it's going, it's pointless checking your blood pressure every day. Like it doesn't really give you any information, you know, that you couldn't get from just your feelings in terms of like, Oh, I'm feeling really stressed. Like, yeah, it's probably gonna be a bit higher. And, and obviously then once you've gotten your, your, your straight up just single um, blood pressure um, assessment done, there is the option then for ambulatory uh, blood pressure. Um, so the doctor will basically give you a blood pressure monitor that will um, uh, it'll fill up um, intermittently. And then you take that home with you and you take it for 24 hours and every 30 minutes or 60 minutes or whatever it is, um, it'll come on and assess your blood pressure in different situations, including uh, during the night. So that can remove both then the mast hypertension and the white coat hypertension. So that's something um, that that's considered in some cases. Um, again, it depends where you look. Some, some guidelines will say, oh, this is gold standard for diagnosis. Some guidelines will say it's unnecessary. You know the deal. Yeah, and I should just say as well, like if you do have modifiable, or if you do, or not modifiable, if you have risk factors for hypertension, then potentially it does make sense to monitor it more often. For example, like if you are a bodybuilder mm-hmm. listening to this and you weigh three hundred pounds and you're on steroids, I'm like, yeah, it probably makes sense to, and especially if you're introducing, I don't know, some fucking, I don't know, anadrol or something, something that like definitely makes you hold on to more water. It's like. Yeah, it probably makes more sense to monitor this a little bit more frequently. And again, this is why you will see bodybuilders do pay attention. Well, health-focused bodybuilders do pay attention to this, but that's not necessarily reflective of what most individuals are going to need to do. Yeah. And even in those cases, like sometimes they can get a bit excessive with it, you know? Like if they have been on fucking these drugs for four weeks and, you know, their body weight has not changed a huge amount. Well, obviously it has, but... um and their blood pressure has been fine throughout and they've been measuring it fucking twice per day. I'm like, you're probably a bit excessive with that. Um, you could probably knock that back because you know you just you just don't need to be that, that frequent with your monitor monitoring. Um, but aside from that, Gary, what's the difference between just this blood pressure cuff and an ECG and an echocardiogram? Because I know that's kind of the next thing that people think of in terms of what their doctor is going to suggest they're going to be like oh you know maybe you do need to look into this a little bit deeper or potentially someone got you know an at-home cuff monitor and they're i don't know maybe some some gyms have them you know either way they've got some random reading themselves most people will then go that's outside of the range gonna go to my doctor their doctor might go right cool we're gonna do two measurements the doctor then goes yeah i think we might have hypertension here or you know it's perfectly fine and 
they might then suggest something else. And I know the, the terms like ECG and, you know, echocardiogram get thrown around and people are just unsure of what that is. So if you just do a quick overview of that before we actually get back on track and talk about, you know, how to improve your blood pressure in obese populations. Yeah. So, I mean, ECG and, and, and echo are both, um, fairly common um, cardiovascular uh, exams, uh, whether it be in an emergency setting or in a screening setting in some cases. Um, but it's not something your doctor is going to do uh, at the GP just for the sake of a, for the sake of a diagnosis of, of hypertension. Like it's not necessary for the diagnosis, but it might be, it might give you information about um, other potential risk factors that might be tied in with that. For example, if someone had atrial fibrillation, that would be uh, picked up on, on an ECG. Um, obviously if someone was having a, if they were having an episode of chest pain, you'd get an ECG for sure. Um, so there, there are some things that could potentially be seen on an ECG that would be associated with hypertension. Um, for example, if someone had a high heart rate, that'd be seen on an ECG. If someone had um, left ventricular hypertrophy, you know, so they've got some of those adaptations associated with hypertension, then that could also be seen in an ECG. But you don't need to go to your doctor, you know, and, and look for an ECG just because, you know, you you think your blood pressure might be high. Same goes for, for an echo. Um, an echo is going to give you information um, about the, the kind of... Um, the volume and the parameters um, of your heart and the function of your heart, which again could be associated with hypertension and could be a complication of hypertension potentially. Um, but again, it's not something that is, that is required for the diagnosis um, of hypertension um, as you're, you're primarily just looking at blood pressure. But those are um, some of the tests as well as many others that could go into a cardiovascular screening and diagnosis. Like for example, as well, if if your doctor was concerned that you have sure they might you know be interested in things like uh, a lipid profile and fasting blood glucose and other uh, primary risk factors um, for cardiovascular disease to get an overall impression of cardiovascular disease risk because that is one of the things that I think um, isn't always explained very well to people that you know treatment decisions in terms of uh, for cardiovascular disease are modified depending on the number of risk factors and how they kind of interact together uh, to predict your your risk of heart disease over five or 10 years or whatever. Um, so that's why you'll see people, you know, on uh, multiple different medications for cardiovascular disease um, because you're addressing these different types of risk factors. Uh, but, but yeah, come back and ask me about that again in, in four years <laughs> and I'll opine, but not for now. <laughs> Fantastic. Right. So Gary, the individual now we're talking to them and I don't know, maybe they've come to us. They were told that they need to They've got obese. They've got obesity. They they probably know that already. Um, but they've been told that they have high blood pressure, right? And their doctor has talked through because this is outside of our scope of practice. You know, maybe one day it'll be in your scope of practice, but right now it's outside of our scope of practice. The doctor has talked talked through them. They've gone through like ACE drugs or ACE inhibitors, A or Bs, calcium channel blockers, thiazide diuretics, beta blockers, renin inhibitors, etc. right? They've gone through those things and they've, they've chosen on a, a course of treatment for this individual. That's something you discuss with your doctor mm-hmm. outside of our scope of practice. So we're ignoring that, right? What would, you know, obviously we're going to talk more about this in future episodes in terms of how to treat obesity or whatever episode format we'll do, we'll do that in. Um, but in terms of we have an obese individual that also has high blood pressure. Like what are the things that we are thinking of, first of all, because 
I know, again, people are going to listen to this because they've searched up online. They're on YouTube because obviously it's on YouTube. Everyone's subscribed. Um, this is on Spotify. Everyone is subscribed. Um, <laughs> but they searched it up and they found, they stumbled across this and they're like, oh, I, I don't know what I should be doing. You know, that's what I want ultimately from this episode. I want to know what I should do for my high blood pressure because I'm an obese individual right? So what should they be focusing on? Because I know, again, they're going to do their, their Googling or whatever, and they're going to come across random fucking diet recommendations, random lifestyle recommendations, random whatever, random information. And ideally, we want to put out some better information. And again, this is not health information. Like I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just going, this is generally what's recommended. These are the things that people talk about. And this might be a good idea to educate yourself on because this is just education and infer information it's not medical advice and um, but what 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 would an individual do to improve their blood pressure if they were obese like what what's what's the protocol gary yeah so i mean one of the first things is is obviously exercise you know i mean i'm always going to say that uh, exercise of pretty much any kind uh, can reduce your blood pressure and that's a really good thing because what it means is that you have many many options um, so you know particularly if you're someone with obesity and you've kind of never had a lifestyle, for example, and you're kind of just, you've seen that you have high blood pressure and you're thinking, you know what, I want to do something about this, but you don't like the gym or whatever. The great thing is that there are so many options. I mean, there's even evidence to suggest that stretching can reduce your blood pressure. So there you go. You know, you can, you can always do something, um, whether it be taking up a bit of yoga, whether it be getting hiking on the weekends, um, starting a, an intensive bodybuilding program, whatever it happens. Or even just walking, Gary. Or just walking. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, like, uh, all types of exercise can potentially reduce your blood pressure. Uh, there is a, a dose response, um, element or element to that, um, in that, you know, it's probably better to try and meet the exercise guidelines. Um, if you're going to, to be really trying to, to maximize your health. So that'd be a great starting point. Um, and both aerobic and resistance training is 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 my typical recommendation here. Um, it's to, we don't actually have that like fantastic evidence on exercise interventions for hypertension, particularly combined interventions. Uh, but overall, you do see that both uh, aerobic training, so some sort of cardio type of thing, um, and resistance training, so lifting weights of sorts, and uh, they do both reduce your blood pressure. Um, I, I wouldn't be confident saying one is better than the other because of the quality of the evidence. But if 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 it does lean in a direction it almost seems like it might lean in the direction of weight training but i'm not sure i'm i'm, I'm not confident with that you know and, I, and i've written about that and we discussed it in a in a podcast as well so so check those out for more details on mechanisms associated with that as well much like we did in this podcast um so exercise there you go done um weight loss i should have said first obviously weight loss is an option um but it is obviously an option as well that often encompasses a lot of the other variables that we're going to discuss. So generally, if you're going to in, you know, take on a weight loss attempt, exercise is, is going to be advised as well. And then obviously improving your diet, as we'll discuss in a moment, is also involved with that. But you know, weight loss, the, great, the good thing about weight loss is that you know, it can, it can be very intimidating for people, first and foremost, like if you're, if you've been told that you're, you, you're class to obesity or whatever, and someone has said to you, you have to lose uh, 20 kilos or something. It's like, God, how am I going to lose 20 kilos? Like that seems insane. But like the good thing is that you do see like fairly significant improvements in metabolic health, like not just blood pressure, but other parameters um, with as little as like 5% 
uh, weight loss. So that like, that's not, that's generally not that much. You know, if you were a hundred kilos, that'd be losing five kilos. You know, that seems a lot more manageable. And if you were to just set that as like a one year goal, it's like, okay, now that, that seems realistic because ultimately like what you're aiming at is that you're aiming to create some sort of, um, changes that are going to produce that rather than just having the weight loss as the primary target. But obviously the weight loss uh, can contribute to it. So you've got your exercise. Um, weight loss is kind of like an, an outcome of the process. Exercise is part of the process. Nutrition is uh, obviously another huge part of the process. Again, we discussed this in great detail um, in our previous uh, blood pressure podcast um, on this topic. But generally, it's, it's a pretty simple um, recommendation because like one of the big things with, with diet and blood pressure is the role of salt. So if you can just reduce your dietary salt, uh, that, that really does um, you know, and move the needle depending on how much salt you're consuming. So obviously, if you're someone who doesn't salt your foods already, you're unlikely to yield much benefit there because you, know, you, you don't have much salt in your diet. But in general, what you tend to see is that a lot of um, salt consumption tends to come in the form of processed foods or foods consumed outside the home. So if you're someone who's always eating on the go, you're always buying, you know, salty crisps or whatever, and, you know, you get um, packages of meat, but they're all, you know, pumped full of sodium, et cetera, that can really pump up your, your sodium or your salt intake without you even realizing it. So if you can begin to kind of monitor that and even just simple things like when you're buying soups, looking at the sodium content and, you know, choosing the lower sodium uh, one instead, that can really move the needle um, on your overall salt intake without having to to specifically track it. Um, in general, if you are going to track it, if you try to keep to you know less than I think it's at, is it two to two to three grams of sodium, four to six grams um, of salt around that. It's not strictly fifty fifty, but around that. Um, and and I think that's like a, a a good general recommendation for people to try to to aim to get below. It doesn't mean you need to try to cut to zero, um, but generally, if you're just trying to improve your overall diet quality, so for example, eating more fruits and vegetables, which is a good thing, um, and you're reducing the the amount of processed foods in the diet, that tends to largely take care of reducing your salt intake. So that's generally what I advise to people: is that if you're not someone who's already like hammering on the salt um, through the salt shaker or whatever. Uh, just have a look at some of the foods that you're buying when you're out, you know, when you're in restaurants and stuff like that, because there can be a lot of salt there without you realizing it, especially if you're a fan of things like soy sauce and stuff like that, you know? Um, so yeah, salt as well on the sodium, like you can easily swap out. Like if you are a fan of like salting your food heavily and like you can easily swap it out for like a potassium salt or in Ireland, we have like low salt. I think it's similar in Britain. Um, And I know there are other ones in America because I know there's Americans, Australians, et cetera, listening to this. And unfortunately I don't know the Australian brands, um, but I know there are brands in America that are potassium based. And I know obviously in Ireland, like low salt is the, the main one. Um, and that's more potassium based, which is also something that's really good for exactly. blood pressure, increasing your potassium intake. Now, generally, I'm not one to be like, start lashing on a load of like potassium and then also taking potassium supplements and whatever else. Like that's probably not the way I would go about it. I would just increase my fruit and veg intake as I think that's a much better way to go about it, which we probably should just address that there is actually a specific diet for high blood pressure, which is the DASH diet. Um but it's basically the diet we recommend all the time, which is like, yeah. just, just eat real food basically. Um, so I got like, you can go in and look up the dash diet, like D A S H diet. Um, but it's basically the same diet that 
like most people would recommend as a healthy diet like you already know what they're recommending like there's some specifics but they're basically all around like limiting sodium intake in the diet and so yeah you can look that up but basically it's like eat more fruit and veg and you're good to go you know yeah yeah like the it's basically more more of like a, a diet pattern than a specific like prescriptive diet you know it's basically it's called the dash diet because it emerged from studies titled the dietary approaches to stop hypertension um, and these are the things that you know seem to have worked and there's been various studies since then that have kind of swapped in and out various things and and what you tend to see is that there is a bit of flexibility there in terms of you know different foods being like it was initially it's classically a, a low fat dairy diet whereas you know it was repeated then with higher fat dairy and you know didn't you know change the outcomes um, as far as I recall, again, I wrote about that, but, but yeah, it didn't really change the outcomes. And then the same with some other dietary changes. And in general, like some of the key features in there are, you know, more fruits and vegetables, again, the benefits of which go beyond just like potassium intake. You also get an, an increase in, in magnesium, you get dietary nitrates, you get calcium, you get other, other things that contribute potentially to um, better vascular health and lower blood pressure and just better health in general. So, you know, get on that. Um, there's other things like uh, whole grains, uh, low fat dairy consumption, as I said, and there's been um, at least one study that studied the addition of uh, more nuts and stuff like that. So, so yeah, there's, it's a, it's a, it's a classic um, diet pattern overall that we would typically recommend where you're eating more fruits and vegetables, you're reducing the quantity of processed foods, you're aiming to limit your, your salt intake, your processed food intake, um, you're eating nuts, you know, you're eating healthier sources of fats, you know, more unsaturated fat typically. Um, because overall, like you're, you're looking at the, the type of diet that's going to reduce overall cardiovascular risk as opposed to solely uh, just blood pressure. Um, and, and thankfully, healthful diets tend to cover a lot of bases rather than just one. So yeah, and there are some of the things that you can do uh, in terms of in terms of diet. Um, I'm not sure was there anything else I was going to say there on the nutrition no. front. On the nutrition, I don't think there's much. But the only other things that we could really say is like improve your sleep and reduce yes. stress. Like again, it's just the general recommendations for pretty much fucking anything. It's like improve your diet, improve your sleep, and reduce your stress. Like they're the, the three big fucking go tos. And if you're not exercising, start exercising. Like that's the the four things, the four fucking pillars of like good health you know so of course they were going to make an appearance here and um, but obviously they're that's easier said than done as we've been discussing this whole series like the sleep one like we did an episode on sleep um a few few weeks back now mm-hmm. um and obviously we've written about that and like if you're in the, the coach's corner you can fucking the, i think that's the next article series no two article series away that i'm going to start doing so there'll be more content in there about that um but yeah basically sleep more now again that's really fucking hard to do if you have sleep apnea because you're obese. So again, you're going to have to fucking treat that either with your doctor's help or by losing weight um, or, you know, potentially get in a CPAP machine or whatever else other intervention. Um, but if it's a case that you are staying up late at night watching, I don't know, Netflix, and then you have to get up early for work and you're unintentionally, but, you know, intentionally with your actions, getting six hours of sleep per night, um, then I would probably stop watching netflix till the early hours <laughs> like that's going to be a good idea and um, and then the reducing stress stuff like again fully aware that that's a, a very hard thing to do especially as we've been discussing throughout this whole series that 
if you have obesity, it's more likely that you come from a lower socioeconomic status and you have all these other fucking things going on. You know, maybe you have kids, maybe you have fucking money troubles, etc. And it's not just a case of, oh, download this app and do five minutes of meditation per day and everything will be solved. Like that's obviously not the fucking case. But again, you have to figure like I can't I can't go through everything in this singular episode um, and we probably will do an entire series on stress itself, but it is something that repeatedly comes up. That's absolutely beautiful silence there, Gary. Yes, sir. Um, I was just making sure that you were done talking because it froze a bit. So yeah, there's a few different things there you can do. Um, Weight loss is the obvious one, but not always um, the necessary one. So just because you do have excess fat to lose does not mean it's your only option. Exercise, super helpful. Um, Restricting your salt intake, eating less processed foods, they go together. Um, stopping smoking as well is another one. You know, smoking um, is a stimulant. Nicotine is a stimulant and it contributes to um, cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality in more ways than one. So it's not just to do with your blood pressure, but it does. It, it, it can potentially help there. Um, alcohol as well. Um, is something that you want to you know get rid of. Um, it's not it's not the the be all end all in that if you're just having a couple of drinks a week, you know, not a not a big deal. But if it has the, if it's part of an overall unhealthy uh, lifestyle pattern, then again, it's something to to try and address. And sleep quantity and quality, as we said. So if you do have sleep apnea, um, that is something that is worth um, getting addressed or getting assessed for. You know, someone that you that you live with or that you sleep with. They are saying to you, you know, oh, you can't, you're kind of stop breathing during the night and, you know, you seem like you're choking or whatever, and then you're hyperventilating and, you know, maybe that's something that you could get screened for. Um, it is worth it. And then like one final uh, random one or not random one for first and foremost, like if you take any recreational drugs, like that's something that you should um, address as well. And um, that includes like certain study drugs and stuff. You know, some people um, get, you know, really pumped on the, on the caffeine and other types of stimulants. And that's, if that's constantly stimulating the system that might contribute uh, to high blood pressure, potentially um, overall, I don't think like caffeine or, or drinking coffee is something you need to worry too much about. Doesn't seem like it's a big risk for many people, maybe for some, um, but overall it reduces cardiovascular disease risk. So it's not something I'd be sweating too much unless I did have high blood pressure. Cause if you do have high blood pressure, it's potentially worth cutting down the caffeine in that case. Okay. Was that what you were going to say? I was going to say that. And also I was going to say that it can transiently elevate yes. blood pressure. So like, as Gary said earlier on, like don't go into your doctor's appointment where you're getting your blood pressure done after fucking yes. a can of monster. And um, that's not a good idea, but that's not chronic, you know? So just, yeah. Yeah. So like if you're a person, if you're someone with healthy blood pressure, normal blood pressure, I wouldn't be worrying too much about my caffeine. Um, or, or my coffee again see our previous episodes on that for more info um but if you are someone with high blood pressure established then i might cut back on the caffeine and the coffee especially if i'm consuming quite a bit of it probably be advised um so yeah recreational drugs as well obviously and then finally random one if you're into it licorice can increase your blood pressure uh, quite a bit as well um particularly if you're someone that loves it i actually have a friend in my class who he came back from um, the Netherlands last year with uh, these like licorice uh, sweets, like licorice bites, but they were like licorice 
plus salt. They were like ridiculously salty. I was like, man, these are these are just not good. Like, um, so yeah, that that could be a legit treatment there for someone if you have low blood pressure to start snacking on those. <laughs> but yeah, if you're eating heaps of licorice, uh, not great for your blood pressure either. Yeah, so that's the episode. Nothing else to say. Hopefully that has uh, helped some individuals in terms of understanding why you have an increased, well, not maybe you, but why there is an increase in high blood pressure in the obese. And hopefully that's given you some ideas about how to potentially help the issue as well. And obviously, again, we will be discussing more of this stuff in the coming weeks. And we still have a few episodes to kind of tie up on, we'll call it the causes of obesity. And we were trying to get some individuals on to discuss that stuff. So that might happen, that might not happen. We'll see what happens. But yeah, so in the next few episodes, you'll get some more causes, but then we'll really start digging into the issues associated with being obese. And hopefully we'll also touch on like how to treat that stuff. And just from like an information perspective, not an actual fucking treatment protocol perspective. Um, But also then we'll hopefully be at a stage where we can discuss like, how do we treat the obesity epidemic overall? Um, And put forward a case of like, this is what we think should be done on multiple levels, both the individual, the your social responsibility level, and then like the government level and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that's obviously a little bit of a, a project for us to kind of put that together. And um, so that'll be a few, few weeks off. Um, but anyway, Gary, where can people find us, find out more information about us, engage with our services, et cetera. Yes. So as always, um, if you are a trainer, I'd recommend getting involved in the triage method coaches corner. Uh, so we discussed blood pressure quite a bit, um, in this podcast, and we do have some articles that are unfortunately behind a paywall guys. Sorry, but for coaches corner members, if you are interested in blood pressure, uh, we do have a full series of seven articles that can be accessed once you are a member. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's obviously something that would be worthwhile checking out because that includes, um, all of the, the research that has informed um, our opinions on this topic um, and, and all of the, the information that we've provided in this episode as well. So, you know, could be worth checking out. But generally, if you are a coach who wants to upskill, you want to learn to apply um, some of the, the sciencey stuff, but in practice, you want to get your training theory on point, you want to get your nutrition theory on point, I'd recommend getting involved um, in the coach's corner. If you're someone who's just looking to get on the path yourself, you know, you want to Maybe you've got high blood pressure and you're like, you know what? I wouldn't mind uh, just taking up some exercise and some nutrition, but I need guidance. Uh, We are there for that. So we do offer training and nutrition coaching combined, but we also offer nutrition coaching on its own. So if you are someone who has, has been affected uh, when you don't have gym equipment, but you do want to take this time to get your nutrition in order, then you can work with us on that basis as well. And nutrition coaching is significantly cheaper um, than both combined. So, you know, that's something to consider as well. Um, other than that, we would typically recommend joining the newsletter, Triage Method newsletter. You can subscribe below. You can join the Triage Method community, our Facebook group, um, and you can follow us on other social media platforms. So at Triage Method on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, um, and of course, uh, I would say subscribe to the podcast, but I don't think that happens on Spotify. Oh no, you you can subscribe, but Follow. you can't review. You can't review. Follow us on Spotify. Follow us on Spotify, um, and follow us wherever else you you get your podcasts. Yes. Um, oh fuck it! Follow us on Instagram as well. We've decided to start putting out more content there because 
it's easy enough to uh yeah, yeah. Content. i mean our individual ones as well i'm the at the real paddy farrell because don't want to be mistaken for the fake ones um, and gary is skinny gaz as he always is um, Simple. yeah i have nothing else to say hope everyone enjoyed the episode and i hope uh we haven't got fucking COVID 20 now or some other fucking variant or something <laughs> by the time this uh episode comes out um i hope we both aren't dead um and i hope uh 2021 is a much fucking better year than 2020 was for most people and um, do you have any final thoughts final words gary uh well this is coming out on january 11th i believe so i hope all of you are crushing your new year's resolutions so far and that they've made it past the first week <laughs> that's fair Anyway, peace out. Too easy.